This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Now, for people who don't know Bernard, he joins me once a month on this here program with a little segment we call Drawn Out, a name suggested by a listener, um, where we talk comic books. We do, we uh, do. Sequential visual narrative and graphic novels and, and such other highfalutin terms. But they're comics, Basically comics. Come on, let's get down yeah. to it. Uh, and, um, look... The first item I have to talk about is ear comics, uh, ear comics, but it's particularly interesting to Richard and I because it concerns um, the great uh, uh, god or alien Cthulhu, uh, who is a, a, cre- a creation of uh, an American writer, H.P. Lovecraft, horror writer. And tonight at, uh, at Readings in St Kilda... In Ackland Street down there, there is the launch of Cthulhu Deep Down Under, which is a, a an anthology of Australian uh, uh, Cthul- Cthuloid tales. And it does have a comic... I, I'm not just saying this just because uh, Richard and I are both, well, cultists, could we call that? As? No, that would be bad. Um, well, in fact, devotees? Devotees of the great god Cthulhu, who sleeps at Riley. Um, but uh, really there is a comics uh, tie-in here because... In this book, which is with the word stories, uh, folks, without, without pictures in them, but there are uh, illustrations throughout, and the illustrations, some of the illustrations are by uh, comics people. But it's a pretty interesting sounding anthology. There's a story in it by Steve, Kil- Steve Kilby of the Church, um, but there's some comics people. Bruce Mutard provides a uh, an illustration. People might know him from his uh, graphic novels, The Sacrifice and the Silence. Jason Franks, a comic book writer, is providing one of the stories, as is Chris Sequiera, who is um, another comic book writer. So the name of the book again? Is Cthulhu Deep Down Under. I've got to get my hands on a you copy. You do, you do, you do. I'll, um, I'll, I'll um, yeah. Anyway, so I'll, I'm going down to St Kilda. As my friend John Murphy said, ah, the Innsmouth of Melbourne, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, is a, which is a HP Lovecraft reference. Uh, Innsmouth, a port town where... Um, deep sea creatures come ashore and terrorise the locals. Now, um, am I led to believe that this is, in fact, Cthulhu Deep Down Under Volume 1? Oh, is it really? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read that far. Volume 1. Well, I th- yes, it is. So there may be more. There may be more. There may be more. Excellent. I will uh, make sure I track down a copy. That sounds great fun. So that's, that's, that's the adventures of Cthulhu in Australia. In, before you start talking about oh. the next chunky tome that yeah, is in your tome, hands, um, in other comic book news, um, I believe Home Cooked Comics Festival has appointed a new festival director. Oh, excellent. Who is that? That is Marion Blythe, who is a friend and colleague who has a a triple R connection as well. Good. Um, uh, She's also, she's written for The Trip, amongst other things, done the odd show here and there. So, yeah. Oh, so that was announced a couple of weeks ago. Excellent. And and has they got a date? Is it in uh, April of... uh Uh, Let me me (laughs) click on a handy (laughs) link, Bernard. Meanwhile, you... Click I've there. clicked on the link. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Home Cooked Comics Festival, a festival celebrating comics, graphic novels and their creators. Now I have to click another uh, link to take me to the Squish Face Studios, Studios page. Which is another excellent uh, bastion of uh, comic April. book. April. It is April. Excellent. Yes. Good news. Uh, and now that I have this page open, I Go can on. mention that applications for the Home Cooked Comics Festival are now open. Uh, the deadline is Monday the 12th of February okay, if you so want to get involved. If you're making a zine or making a comic, you need to send in, get in that. So it's a, a, they're at Squishface, Squishface Studios. Web, website. Uh, yes, so squishfacestudio.com. So if you want to uh, be uh, at a basically a, a comics 
festival that day. But if you want a table where you can sell, you know, the adventures of Zucchini Woman um, uh, or whatever you're doing, then make an application, be there on the day, meet other comic book makers and have a great deal of fun. It will be at Northcote Town Hall in April. And if you want to get a table, uh, $30 for a full table if you're an exhibitor, 15 for a half table. Uh, and free half table for creators under 25 or first-time exhibitors. Love at the it. Home Cooked Comics Festival, Northcote Town Hall, uh, on the 15th of April. So squishfacestudio.com forward slash home cooked for more details if you want to register and get a table. Great. Congratulations great, great. on the gig, Marion. Yeah, excellent news. Um, so uh, this is, a uh, as, as uh, Richard has described it, a chunky tome that I'd like to talk about as the first uh, book today. And it is by uh, two women, Corinne Mayer and Anne Simon. And it's three biographies of three sort of obscure guys from the 20th century uh, or no, well, nineteenth, nineteenth into twentieth. Yeah. Uh, Marx, Freud, and Einstein. Never heard of them. <laughs> so these la- these women, these creators. Uh, one of them is the writer. Is sounds amazing. Corinne Mayer. She's a Swiss. Uh, she's an economist, she's a historian, she's a psychoanalyst and she's a very funny comics writer, I'd have to say. Uh, and the cartooning, the the pictures, are drawn by a French cartoonist, uh, Anne Simon. So, um, but the, so there's a three separate uh, stories which have been bound up. They've been producing them over the last oof, five years or so. This book, this collection of all three, Marx, Freud and Einstein, came out last year from No Brow Press, which is a um, an English... Uh, publisher. It's a great. It's a great title for a, a comic book press. <laughs> really no is. brow, neither highbrow nor lowbrow. No, yeah. And neither. speaking of titles, I love the fact that this book, uh, Marx, Freud, and Einstein, has the subtitle "Heroes of the Mind," <laughs> which is kind of cool because yeah. they are all all three kind of thinkers. Yeah. So yeah, and it's uh, look this this is a not only a beautifully cartoon book like uh, uh, so Anne Anne Simon, the cartoonist, has this classic French fluidity about her line work uh they are it's definitely cartooned it's not it's not realistic you know it's a, if you think of say tintin it's even more cartoony than tintin maybe moving towards an asterix sort of uh, feel but uh the stories that uh, she gives, uh, that um, uh, Corinne Mayer, the writer, gives us of these three dudes, uh, it's just they're beautif- it's beautifully toned. Um, they both uh, look out to us. The, 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 they narrate their own stories. So the, uh, those three people um, look out at us and talk to us from time to time, but they, we, we, what we also are privy to as a reader is their private lives, you know, their um, marriages or romances, uh, as well as their breakthroughs. And, but what, what, is, what was um, best for me about reading this book is that sense of, of struggle and the years of, you know, um, obscurity and poverty uh, that you get from uh, the, that they've distilled for the from for, for these um, for these three figures. So yeah, it's uh, I found it incredibly compelling reading, and it's a beautiful colour work uh, uh, by the cartoonist as well. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's. I mean, real... I just opened it a page at random, and it's the uh, the third Freud? of the volume about Freud yeah. um, and spe- speaking of struggle so it's the cartoonist has drawn the interior of his head in giving us layers instead of panels yeah, for example yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and showing Freud all my life I tried to unravel the mysteries of the human mind I imagined a system but it didn't work so I created another I only grope for answers and 
these kind of comments are illustrated by trying to unravel the mystery of the mind. So there's the human brain with Freud's head nestled in amongst it. When he's talking about imagining a system, you've got these gears trying to intermesh with yeah. un- conscious, unconscious, subconscious, intermeshing yes. with id, ego, super ego. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this sense of illustrating his struggle, illustrating his thoughts and ideas, there's kind of a real vitality and life there to, is. to the I, illustrations. I think that's beautifully identified there. It, it's very, I think... That, Witty, I guess, but and, and there's a lot of verve in the in these in these books. They move along, and even when the the um, character uh, is really uh, suffering, um, or you know, you, you, it's 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 a beautiful. There's a beautiful uh, touch. There's a very light touch to this yeah. book. So yeah, rec- really recommend it. Gently um, irreverent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that, that's that's well said as well because they're they're not this sort of they're not a sort of a well, warts and all expose. You know, look at the human. You know, these, nor is it a uh, kind of Hagiography. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's quite, quite human. Yeah. Marx, Freud, and Einstein: Heroes of the Mind by Corinne Meyer and Anne Simon, uh, published. Uh, by No Brow, and yeah. I'm sure you can pick it up from a good independent Melbourne bookseller. I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could just waltz on in, waltz on in. Um, get let's get let's get local for a moment. Uh, Tristan. Um Tristan Blumenstein's <laughs> most recent book. Uh, now, so this, this is, is the uh, kind of infamous younger brother of uh, <laughs> Melbourne cartoonist and uh, illustrator David, David Blumenstein. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and I can never quite know how to say Tristan's name because really it's spelled Tristian. But the problem with uh, uh, Tristan is that. He just misspells so much uh, in his in his work. This is a little uh, tiny t- little. I, 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 Five, a six book, uh, and it's called Tristan Tristian Overseas, but uh, it's <laughs> as spelled. in overseeing rather yeah, than yeah. travelling overseas, overseas, but also going overseas. overseas. And it's his um, America through the eyes of Australia's youngest political journalist. Yes, so the word, it's, it's the youngest. And I'm sure he's not listening. And worst. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's, there's, <laughs> That's a good point. There is a, uh, I won't mention names, but there, no. are, there I'm sure there's at least one uh, kind of conservative political commentator who's started out as a teenager in the Murdoch press. <laughs> but, uh, yes. And that's part of the point of... of uh, these book the, or Trist, the ongoing Tristan Blumenstein um, project uh, by David Blumenstein um, is it's taking the um, it's it's really drilling big holes into uh, the the media and the commentariat and the. Uh, the, the 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 morass that we find ourselves, you know, he, he's, he's, it's in a very very funny uh, um, satire uh, from within of. Uh, so this is this is <clears throat> this is Tristan being in America for the primaries uh, to, that got that got Trump into Power. office. I, I'm just going to read it from the back cover. If you would. Hi, I'm Tristan. I'm at Strathfield Secondary College, and I went to America in 2016. They invented junk food. Prepper magazines and Fox News, but I didn't think they could mix them together to make a president, <laughs> lol. Um, and then uh, there is a back cover quote. Kind of everybody likes to appreciate a good blurb. Absolutely. Here's one from Andrew Bolt. Oh, thank gosh. Uh, crudity of language and thought of a playground. <laughs> so uh, if you like crude language and playground okay. humour yeah. about American politics, politics and media and the American primaries campaign, then Tristan Blumenstein's 
Tristan overseas. <laughs> Sounds like the comic for you. It does. And you can go Fits to... in a pocket. <laughs> it does. And, and a small pocket at that. Um, and you can, if you would like to see it uh, online, uh, it was a, these pieces were originally printed in The Daily Review. So you can go to The Daily Review and Blumenstein, B-L-U-M-E-N-S-T-I-N. Yeah, I think. Uh, and, and search that and uh, you'll find his... his um, these pieces and other work by by Tristan. Excellent. Just one more quickly. Great. And uh, I'd like to talk also just quickly about Parvana, which is a book that's just being published by um, by Alan and Unwin. And um, so Parvana is coming from a, uh, a film, an animated film, which has just been produced. Um, and it's uh, this is a, a, a graphic novel about a young girl uh, living in Kabul and it's a way uh, it's a uh, it comes from an, a novel by a woman called Deborah Ellis and it's been produced into a an animated film now called uh, The Breadwinner but this book Parvana P A R V A N A is a graphic novel about this young girl and her struggle in uh, uh, in Kabul under the under the the Taliban, and so it's a way of uh, it's a way of introducing younger readers, um, younger people, um, to the texture of life, particularly for women and girls in Afghanistan. And so it does a very it's uh, just just published just coming out recently, and it does a remarkable job of making that quite drastic situation um, uh, able to be talked about and grappled with so this is um, uh, it's so it's it, the drawing style is it's clearly from an animated it's the, the the frames have been taken from the animated film the breadwinner um, so yeah I recommend I was talking with my sons this morning about this book and just saying um, that the 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 um, empathy that it allows for uh, another person's situation, very difficult one, um, is 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 very um, it's it's very useful. I suppose it's a great talking point and um, yeah, and a, and a very caring and compassionate book. So that's Parvana, a graphic novel based on the original book by Deborah Ellis and adapted from the feature film directed by Nora Toomey. Uh, T-W-O-M-E-Y and it's published by Alan and Amon and it's out now. Excellent. Great. Just finally, before you go, Bernard, uh, for anybody listening who is a comic book artist themselves and is going, how do I get my ideas printed and published? How do I expand my craft? Um, uh, if uh, you are after some funding to help you do that, uh, Creative Victoria have just tweeted that their Vic Arts Grants program opens today, providing grants of between 5000 and 60000 for discrete projects and programs that will develop and bring dynamism to Victoria's arts sector. Applications close on the 22nd of February. Go to creative.vic.gov.au for more info about that. Um, I would like to see more comic book more. makers and artists applying for funding uh, um, 
it's I mean the literature sector generally is underrepresented in the in the funding pool. So writers of all stripes, whether you are writing writers with of pictures, gra- writing with exactly writing graphic fiction, uh, writing graphic fiction, uh, or uh, <laughs> just writing at all, uh, jump online. Uh, as I said, creative.vic.gov.au. That funding round opens today. Bernard, we will catch you in a month's time Thank to you, talk Richard, more see, comic books. See you then. Bye. See you then. My next guests have joined us in the studio to talk about a work called Burlesque by Force, which is having its Melbourne premiere at the Butterfly Club. Now, when the Butterfly Club opened, it was best known for hosting kind of cabaret. Uh, and over time, it started to uh, focus more on theatre and kind of other art forms. But Burlesque by Force is co-created by Brody John, who's the writer of the work, and Marissa Bennett, who's its director and dramaturg, amongst other titles. And welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Us. So, Brody, I'm going to get you to, to start by telling us about the work. The premise of the show sees a burlesque performer coming off stage to applause at the end That's of a right. show and slowly as the layer of uh, costuming is stripped away, layers of pain are revealed as well. Tell us more about the work. Absolutely. So the work started from conversations that were being had about sexual trauma and what it means to live with, you know, the results of, of massive, you know, things that happen in our lives in that space. Um, and one of the thoughts I had about it was you see a work out there that kind of tackles that stuff really directly and can become quite confronting. And I was thinking about ways, and these formed the discussions for how we started to build this work around how do we approach those topics in a way that is approachable and is relatable and and allows a conversation to be opened rather than, you know, a direct sort of storytelling to happen. So the burlesque metaphor kind of came out of that space of sexualized performance as we understand it. So when you when you talk about burlesque with people, they have a bit of a, an idea about what what's shaped there. It was a really strong visual cue, uh, we thought, as uh, and provide an interesting platform to look at issues of consent, sexual assault, surviving, uh, things like that. And also, you know, going to other issues like homophobia, uh, and wider prejudices as well. One of the other things that uh, we should probably mention is I get the feeling that, to use the the, the phrase trigger warnings, gets kind of bandied around. Of course. Kind of of some people almost cruelly or satirically. Anybody who has suffered serious trauma knows that they can be triggered by certain events, certain scenes or events or references uh, and uh, those triggers uh, can cause quite traumatic flashbacks for people as they relive events. Um, do we need to give a trigger warning for the, the, this conversation as we continue? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I don't think we're going to be going into anything too deeply because we don't want to give away the show but um i also i always think that it's that it's sensible to to advise to advise that cool. at all mm. yeah. So, yeah so we will be talking about sexual assault uh, uh in the the rest of this conversation so uh, if that is a triggering subject for you maybe go make a coffee turn off the radio come back in 10 minutes but it's um it's important to us as well that when we to declare because we do offer a trigger warning to the show but we also advise that um We've approached this topic in ways that, though people may find triggering, is not meant to be confronting or meant to be challenging or meant to be harmful to people. Yeah. Uh, it's important, I think, for a lot of people to feel like they have the freedom to emote and have the respect and the safety to feel what they feel about things without judgment. And I'm really, 
I know that I'm proud. I know that we're proud to present a work that we've had response from audience that we, we've achieved that in a lot of spaces. You know, a lot of people come out feeling perhaps quite raw, but also really really understood and really heard and really allowed to feel what they feel about something. I think for me, one of the other things that are are valuable about trigger warnings is people can prepare themselves for a difficult experience and Mm. knowing that they're going into a work that is dealing with kind of... um, uh, the experiences of a survivor of sexual assault can, uh, can be kind of uh, cathartic and therapeutic for people as well. And for people who haven't been assaulted, it's a really valuable way to... One of the great things I love about the performing arts is the way it allows us to empathise and mm. build empathy and a sense of connection. Um, to Marissa, to bring you kind of deeper into the conversation, for, as a director and dramaturg on a work like this, uh, you must have to it must require an enormous amount of tact, but also discipline as well to say to, to to help shape what is I understand a fairly personal work. Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, and I think you know initially coming to the work, there was a bit of a softly, softly approach. I had to, I guess kind of feel out where Brody was in his process um, of writing and, you know, figure out and and have conversations around but also observe his behaviour around, around, um, you know, sometimes we say we're okay with something but, you know, somebody's behaviour or their body is telling us something else. So I had to spend a lot of time sort of watching and observing Brody and seeing how he was communicating about the work as well to understand mm. a little bit where he was at and um, how far I could, you know, push in certain directions. Um, and I think once we established that relationship and it was, you know, clear where Brody was at, we were able to be, I guess, a lot less precious we're able to create a create a space where we could separate Brody's personal experience from the work which I think is important to be able to step outside of it and go okay my personal experience has been thus however uh to effectively communicate what I want to to an audience I need to step out and we need to go okay what needs what needs to happen here and what's valuable so it's about finding the division between personal experience and art yeah absolutely absolutely we were really the early conversations we had were trying to make sure we made a distinction as well between art and therapy so it was super important I mean the work the first iteration of the work which is very different from what we have now um was written back in 2016 and we talk about how long that is after the actual events that that the show discusses um because it it had to be it had to come out of being very personally okay and have moved on from a lot of the real a lot of the, the really you know emotions that could have been really dangerous if we brought them to an audience on stage. It was about making sure the audience feels safe to engage in this conversation, which they won't always be able to do if you get up there and you just see a human, you know, feeling incredibly vulnerable and feeling very, you know, unable to process their emotions. And that those conversations were really valuable to making sure that that's what we gave an audience was, was a show they could feel safe to enter into, not sitting out there and watching someone collapse every night etc and the other thing that i think is valuable about the work not having seen it yet but looking forward to seeing it is that we don't often hear from uh male survivors of sexual assault uh there's the the stigma and the shame as a man you're supposed to be able to you're supposed to be strong you're supposed to be able to defend yourself and so forth so to kind of to include that voice in uh in a, a broader conversation but also in an artistic conversation i think is a really important point to make as well sure 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Marissa's perspective in in the way this work is written has been really amazing because at the same time we actually felt that there were I would have said that there were a lot more women who came to the came to the premiere back in Adelaide. We had, um, but the men who did come felt validated in the conversations they were having. But it, I want to make really clear that the show isn't just about the one, you know, the male experience. You know, like we've, I feel like we've written about it in a way that between our two perspectives has been open. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I also think that f- for for me. You know, it was really important that I feel like in in order for for Brody to 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 share what he wants to share, that the show needed to be really accessible. Mm. And you know, the first iteration of the script, you know, it's an autobiographical work, mm. and it was hugely and and it and it and the first the first script really did adhere to to Brody's process, which is just get everything out, get it all. <laughs> out so we had to sift through a lot of a lot of things and there is a lot of you know I guess deep stuff in there there is a lot of stuff which is potentially triggering there's a lot of stuff which is potentially difficult to to watch and to deal with but it was really important to me that we were able to bring humor <laughs> into the piece as well um, as a way of keeping Brody safe through the process. Mm. But also as a way of, of, of creating a space for the audience where there is relief. And um, yeah, and I th- I think we've sort of managed to do that. And particularly in this next season, we've sort of added we've we've added more material, mm. which I think, you know, will will make it a touching yet enjoyable experience and allows the audience space to go away and think about it and not just be bombarded with a lot of raw, heavy mm. stuff. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Brody John and Marissa Bennett about a work called Burlesque by Force, which is on at the Butterfly Club from the 7th through the 11th of February. It's is it? It's part theatre, part poetry, part burlesque. <laughs> so a blurring of art forms to kind of explore consent and trauma uh, and survival. Uh, how important is it, kind of uh, Brody, for you to to be performing this work as opposed to entrusting it to another performer? It was, it's an interesting question because uh, you know, up front, I'm not a trained actor. You know, I didn't go to VCA. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and so there were there, those were honest conversations we had about whether it was worth getting someone you know, else to sort of bring it. And I think you know we're not ruling it out for the future, um, but for these first seasons, it had to come from a place of of honesty. Um, and the work is autobiographical, and um, it was about providing providing a real story from the person who experienced it. Um, and in that, what we're what we're driving forward, I believe, is the ability for people to break their own silences in their own lives and to see that it's possible to get to this state where it's not to say that everyone's going to write write a show about you know what they experience but they will hopefully come out of it going actually this is I'm a this is available to me this ability to tell my story and have it not continue to kind of harm me and torture me for the rest of my life is possible uh, and so this symbolism that that, that that creates by having the person who experienced it tell the story I think is really important and you know um it was wonderful to work with 
a director and and an artist as talented as Marissa to sort of help me get that discipline together and help me to bring those skills to the fore, um, which is going to be a long process, um, but you know, but has has just been really fantastic. How did you meet? It's a great story. <laughs> it's a great story. We met a few years ago at a mutual friend's New Year's Eve party um, and shared a shared a moment over a Tori Amos remix. <laughs> and that is pretty much, yeah. that was it, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Now, um, as we've, mm. uh, we've heard, Burlesque by Force has already had an Adelaide season, mm. so it premiered at the Feast Festival, Adelaide's kind of queer cultural festival mm. last year. It's now here in Melbourne, uh, and after the Melbourne season, we'll go back to Adelaide this time for the Adelaide Fringe. Um, what was the, the response in the original Adelaide season like? And how much has the work changed yeah. since that season? Um, the response was overwhelmingly very good. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. Um, I think it sort of surprised us both, yeah. I think would be fair to say. Um, it was very important for me going into it as as a director, but also I kind of felt like I played the role of caretaker a little mm. bit because I was very concerned with Brody's experience this being such an autobiographical story, I really wanted to make sure that he was really safe in the process and safe in the performance. So initially the show, Brody was like, you know, it'll be an hour show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, it won't. No, no, no. We'll, we'll make it really short. We'll make it short and sharp and punchy. We'll see how you go. We'll see how the audience responds. And then we'll renegotiate. So we, we I guess we err on the conservative side and, you know, the show probably ended up running about half an hour yeah, or something. Like mm-hmm. And what we discovered through that was that Brody had a lot of fun doing the show. Mm-hmm. This isn't this is some heavy material, mm-hmm. but he loved doing the show and he had fun and the audience had a great time and they were able to connect to him and when they came out of the show they wanted more. So then we were able to renegotiate and go, great, you were okay with this material, you're safe and you're able to, t- to, t- to handle it and also the audience are as well. So now let's get back in there and add some more of this extra material that we are so lucky to have and, and renegotiate that. So, um, you know, there's, there is, there's some new material in the show as well which ventures both into, you know, comedy and the other side. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think it's it's going to be sort of a a, a more well rounded mm. show this time round. Yeah, it's always good to have that ex- that opportunity and experience uh, as an artist to revisit a work and mm. just to go. It kind of does it need pruning back, mm. or in this instance, no, it needs to grow here and here and here. It's yeah. kind of like that process of restaging work mm. makes work better. Yeah, absolutely. We that was amazing, you know, to sort of have the response be. More please <laughs> yeah, is yeah. probably that is that's not just the best thing you can hope for. The best thing you can hope for is I really liked it, but then sort of people go, "Can you give us more of it?" Um, is just amazing. So yeah, it has been wonderful to be able to explore some of those, yeah, some of those extremes as, as you were saying. Like it's it's going to be really fantastic, and I feel like it's a lot more polished and it's coming into itself and a lot more on the front foot this time around. Whereas the last time we were we were trying to be as gentle with me as we were with our audience. So. Um, yeah, 100%. I think also it's you know it's important to note that while we're saying that this is a second season and there's new material, that I still very much approach it as a work in process. 
Um, and I think given given the nature of what we're talking about in the show, everything mm. is about being in process. Mm. So it, it it's, you know, I think it's it would be nice for the audience to come into the space and, you know, know that they're actually still still seeing something evolving and mm. this is not the end point and that your feedback is welcome and that what you feel after the show is really welcome to us and mm. if you see us in the foyer come up and say you know give us your feedback stay around for a drink afterwards at the butterfly club they Always. make excellent cocktails and <laughs> chat do. to the artists about your experience <laughs> please, of the work the do. show is called burlesque by force co-created by uh Playwright and performer Brody John and uh, director dramaturg uh, Marissa Bennett. Thank you both so much for coming in. Thank you Thank so you. much for having us, Richard. Thank you. My next guest has just joined us in the studio, part of uh, the troupe who are performing in This Is Pop Baby's Riot at Art Centre Melbourne, opened last night and running through until the 9th of February, which was uh, a hit at the Dublin Fringe, uh, has been a hit at the Sydney Festival just recently and uh, is now here in Melbourne. Rory O'Neill, a.k.a. Panty Bliss, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Slightly hungover. <laughs> you did have an opening night last yeah, night. Yeah, so. yes, we did. And it was like some sort of full the lunar eclipse thing was going on. It all felt uh, like an excuse. Yes. Well, and why not? Any, <laughs> any excuse. So, let's before we talk about Riot in detail, mm. some people may have seen you performing as your alter ego, Panty Bliss, before yeah, in yeah. Melbourne, yeah. or they may have seen the film uh, uh, Queen of Ireland, which yeah. is kind of uh, a, a wonderful documentary, uh, one I've watched a couple of times, and I, mm-hmm. I, I tear up at a couple of points every time <laughs> as well. Can't just force you to watch it or something. Is that what happened? No, I actually... <laughs> I ordered it on DVD from the Oh, you're very good. Yeah. You're very good. So... One of the things that um, you slash Panty are known for was becoming a, uh, a, a spokesperson in the in the marriage equality campaign mm. in Ireland a yeah. few years ago. Uh, after um, there was kind of legal action and uh, yes. kind of, uh, and you then made this stirring speech on stage uh, at a theatre, which kind of went viral. Yeah. Um, f- how does it feel now that a couple of years of that? A couple of years later, kind of looking back on that period, because it, um, it you didn't deliberately become a spokesperson for the for the the, the marriage campaign. Overall. No, I mean I was pretty politically engaged in sort of gay politics, put it that way or something. Anyway, um, because I've been performing, you know, I am forty nine, um, so I've been performing for a long time, and uh, in the gay community, you know, drag queens. You know, we're usually the ones who have the microphone and get to stay, say stuff and whatever. Um, so, but and I had gotten into media scrapes before in Ireland. Um, I have a big mouth and it gets me into trouble sometimes. Um, uh, but yes, uh, the, the, what you're talking about is I went on a chat show and I, I accused some people of being homophobes and they got very upset. And it was in the run-up to our referendum on marriage equality, or about a year before it or something. And um, I think really as a political tactic, these people then sued me and they sued the a TV station, to which try is our s- national channel. Yeah, To try and scare them into silence? Yes, I think to sort of, they were trying to set the parameters of what they knew was going to be this referendum debate coming up or something. And it became a huge scandal because, it was, because they were given money by the national broadcaster and technically that's taxpayers' money. And it just became this huge, big, weird, just 
unexpected scandal. And, and, and that's then when I made this speech that then, you know, it was a few years ago and um, things didn't go viral. You know, I wasn't so aware of those things. Um, and I, I make speeches for a living. I mean, my, I make a, my living is basically standing up, you know, soliloquies, one-woman shows, monologues, stand-up, whatever you want to call them. So I thought I was just making a speech. I thought nothing of it. And then, um, and then it sort of went out into the world and took on a life of its own. Um, and in some ways it changed my life, really, um, in the sense that it, it became sort of a calling card or something about what I do. And, you know, I'm a drag queen, and for years I, m- the problem for me was trying to get people to take what I do seriously because um, I was doing theatre shows and that, and, and people would sort of think, why would I go and see a drag queen in the theatre, you know? Um, because didn't I see one, you know, in a bar last night when I was drunk? And um, uh, that's but that speech sort of went out into the world and made people take me seriously, maybe too seriously sometimes. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, but it all seems very long ago to me now. And actually, was watching. You know, I come to Australia at least once a year, usually to do tours and stuff. And and seeing the last few years, seeing the, the Australian marriage equality debate has been a weird experience for me because it's been almost exactly the same as ours. Sometimes I would turn on the TV and it, it'd be, you know, what's that show? You know, the question and the answers show. Um, yeah, Q&A. Show, yeah. Q&A. And sometimes you know, the arguments would be literally word for word the same. And um, so it's been an interesting experience to watch it all happen again here in Australia. Um, but I will... Um, confirm for anybody who's worried here in Australia that in fact three years after ours the sky didn't fall down uh-huh. uh, children are still enjoying ice cream cars are still moving uh, you know nothing happened um, the world is just the same except uh, gay people get married occasionally <laughs> now I wanted to ask kind of having watched the doco and knowing a little bit about the evolution of Panty and you mm. performing in Japan for example mm. and, and fine tuning the performance there where does Kind of Rory O'Neill end and Panty start. <laughs> kind of like because with performers, often there is a, a persona overlaid uh, yeah. on a performer. Um, um, but kind of sometimes there are clear delineations between them, and sometimes there's not. Where, what is? Where is I would it say that there isn't really to me a much of a delineation. Or my friends, uh, you know, or maybe it's you know it's a gin and tonic is the gin is the line. Um, Obviously, visually, Panty is very different from Rory. And, um, I mean, you can see Rory sitting in front of you and I'm in a T-shirt, and like I usually am. Um, uh, well, Panty is basically a bigger version of me, or she's certain, she's certain aspects of me exaggerated and other aspects dampened down. I think it was actually... I, I think RuPaul, and so it's funny, there's another drag queen, once said that he is um, an introvert masquerading as an extrovert. And that's how I feel. Um, I am... You know, I, I'm not a shy person or in any way like that, but I'm uh, when I'm just in my regular day life, I'm not the kind of person who wants to be in the middle of the room with all the attention. I'm 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 comfortable in the corner, sitting down, watching it all happen, and and dressing up and putting on all of the gear and making yourself larger than life is sort of an ex- an excuse to be an extrovert or something, or it allows you, forces you to be an extrovert. Um, so Panty's much more extroverted than I am, yeah. So 
Panty is performing in Riot, which opened last night yes. at Art Centre Melbourne. Yes, that's what I meant to be talking about, right? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Art Centre Melbourne, on to the ninth. I, I wanted to kind of set the scene and yes, give people yes, an introduction yes, who, yes. who don't know you. So this is, uh, it, it's a bit of a cabaret. It's a Spiegel tent style show, I Kind guess. of. It's very hard to explain. You know, because you, you know, obviously I've been asked, this show first went up, uh, oh, Two years ago, I think, or, uh, 1916, the September 1916. 2016. 2016, but it was 100 years <laughs> after the 1916 rising in Ireland. That's why I was doing that. Uh, yeah, so, so 2016, so what's that? Two years. And so I've been asked many, many, many times, so tell me about right. And I wish there was an easy answer, but there isn't. Because it is rooted in theatre, because the people who made it. Um, but it there are the, the, the performers are from all of you know, the performing arts. So there are circus performers, acrobats, c- c- you know, comedy people, uh, a lot of musicians and singers, um, dancers. Um, and and if, when we were putting it together, we we were having lectures from people who are experts in the old style of vaudeville. <laughs> um, so it looks like a variety show or a vaudeville show in that there's a lot of different kinds of performers and every five minutes it changes. So, you know, you have a reward. But... There is a kind of a narrative, um, a sort of a, that's been driven through by a lot of spoken word pieces, um, and a lot of live singing and music and all that. Um, so there's, you'll spend most of the time howling, laughing, and screaming and cheering, because it's, it's noisy and loud and big and like a party. But every now and then, it suddenly will punch you in the gut and uh, and make you think really hard about something and weirdly um we put the show together i guess in 2015 but the themes of the show are a lot to do with women and 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 also to do with politics and both of those things and the things that the show says about them have become were almost um prescient it turns out we're kind of magic people because uh, since the me too business and since the election of trump and brexit and all that all the stuff that we wrote for the show is seems even more like on the money and pertinent at the moment given the, some of those themes and particularly the themes around kind of feminism and me too for example it's kind of uh timely then that while you're over here getting uh, performing riot at sydney festival and now at art center melbourne that uh ireland has finally got to the point where it's about to have a referendum over women's rights for, for abortion yeah, which, which is mentioned I- in the show too and sometimes you know there are these small irish references that maybe are you know oh, okay. that doesn't matter you know the show is kind of wild and noisy and fun but um, yeah no that's one of the concerns in the show too yeah it's mentioned yeah. yeah so we've got kind of circus performers we've got you as a as a drag queen we've mm-hmm. got Lords of Strut who've done kind of like street theatre performance yeah. and yes. clowning and knockabout comedy comedy acrobats is what I call them, them. Yeah. Um, yeah and some, some delightfully uh, lunatic uh, YouTube videos as well which people yeah. can hunt down and watch and but, we have insane dancers you know like they're like those Irish a lot of things have sort of an Irish uh, flavor to it, but it's been it's what's we used to say when we were making. What would our version of river dance look like? And you know, it's not um, it's not a, a gay show in any way, but it has a kind of queer sensibility, I would say, about it. And so it's it's how we see our Ireland. And so there there's like Irish dancing, but done to the arrhythmics while the dancers are inside giant pink balloons. I mean, you know, it's this kind of nuttery um, is going on all the time. Um, uh, and but amongst all the mix of different performers, as you said, you've got theatre theatre 
performers mm-hmm. from all different, every kind of genre and subcategory yeah. of theatre. Yeah. But you've also got a former Gaelic football player in the mix. Yeah, so um, one of the things that we didn't have in the mix um, in the very beginning we knew we wanted was a kind of an aerialist-type performer. And so we went looking for one, and um, and we found this guy, Ronan Brady, and um, he was a county footballer in Ireland. And I don't know how much you know about Gaelic football, but being a county footballer in Ireland is a big deal. I mean, you're a superstar. And um, he was injured. He played for Roscommon. That's his county. He was also the smallest county, or the least populated county in Ireland, and is the only county that voted against marriage equality, by the way. Uh, so it has a reputation. And... Um, and he had taken up aerial stuff in an effort to to keep up his you know being limber and uh, you know whatever his what, what's the word stretchability or whatever the word is um he's trying to overcome an injury that had put him out of football and he never really recovered enough to go back to football fully but he really got into the aerial stuff and he's a hunk of an irish country lad um, um who's doing this aerial stuff and we just thought that's an interesting you know, mix sort of, but he wasn't a seasoned performer at the time. And um, but the producers, you know, they sort of said, "Right, this could be our guy." And 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 so so he spent then a few years like really working up this amazingly. Well, he does he does a lot on the show. He does a few things, but he does one particular sort of sort of a, a comic strip. Um, Use you uh, from you from his football outfit, but it's so brilliantly done and. Um, uh, it's wildly hilarious and, uh, yeah. And was him getting involved in the show, for him, a bit of a baptism by fire? Oh, my God. He had hardly met, like, anybody like us beforehand. He tells the story about coming to the first... The first thing he ever, time he ever met the whole cast when he came to the photo shoot, um, you know, before we went into full rehearsals and everything... And he's hardly ever even met a gay person. And the next thing he knows, he's in the room with, you know, me, giant, seven foot tall, you know, drag queen. And the costume designer is, like you know, like the gayest person in the world. And he's coming up and handing him a tiny little pair of briefs to wear. And, you know, and he was a school teacher as well, you know. And, um, and so he was sort of, and he turned around and said to her, producer, and will these photos be seen much? And she's like... Yes, they'll be absolutely everywhere, you know, like... And he's like, oh, so I guess I'm not going back to teaching, <laughs> you know, like... Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's been a huge change for him, but it's all worked out wonderfully, I think, um, and... Um, He's having a great time. Right. He's going around the world with a bunch of nuts. The show is called Riot. Uh, it's on in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne. I'll give all the booking details in just a moment. But you mentioned that it premiered in 2016, which was the, the centenary of the Easter Rising. Which yes. Kind of was, um, the, 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 the point where kind of like essentially what an, what could have been an ill-fated uh, rebellion which the British put down so violently that they actually flamed the fans of, yes. of rebellion. It was a small rebellion that most people had couldn't, you know, at the time, most Irishmen weren't particularly interested in until the reaction to the to, to that this small rebellion was so over the top and they, they executed everybody involved that, that sort of that then sparked off... Um, the, the sort of the real drive for Irish independence and all that. So, so, so the government is celebrating it big in 2016, and uh, so, uh, so we applied it, for a grant to make a new show. So, so <laughs> is Riot trying to then encapsulate uh, in a, a sense of kind of Irishness in terms of spirit, freedom, rebellion to tie in? Um, with that it is, it is, it is, is flavoured all the way through with some a form of Irishness, but it's not an Irish show, and that's 
sense. It's, it's modern with these funny Irish touches to it. But what it is, is it's about... Um, it, it, it is enthusing you to, uh, to you know, to revolve, revolution, or, you know, to, to think about changing the world. It, uh, yeah. It's about, um, it's about saying change is possible. It's a very optimistic show. I look forward to seeing it. I'm getting along tonight. So oh, good, 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 so, good. Uh, I promise you'll have a wildly fun time. I suspect I will, given everything I've read about it and know about the show. This is Pop Baby's Riot. It's on until the 9th of February in the Fairfax Studio at Art Centre Melbourne. You can book at www.artcentremelbourne.com.au. Uh, and uh, it's been so popular that two extra shows have been added. So uh, Yes, uh, we, we have a very tight schedule. There's a lot of days with two shows. Yeah, yeah you're going to be busy while you're here, but I yes. hope you can uh, get out and about and see a little bit of Melbourne as well. And as I said, I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, Rory O'Neill's alter ego Panty Bliss performing in Riot. Rory, thank you so much Thanks for coming. Thanks for having in. me. My next guest is composer, artist, and curator Lawrence English, who joins us to talk about an exhibition of work by kind of uh, a, a pioneer in industrial music, in art and other fields, Genesis Breyer P. Orridge. Um, Lawrence, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, this is an exhibition that's on at the substation. It is opening tonight. Genesis was going to be coming to Australia, but unfortunately yes. has had to cancel due to ill health. Yeah. But the exhibition itself goes ahead. Which us. is which is great. I mean, it's been quite a, uh, a journey. Obviously, Genesis was diagnosed with uh, leukaemia about six months ago. So we've sort of been planning on a visit for Genesis. Well, I'd been planning on a visit for Genesis for some time. Um, and then, obviously, this came up and it was unfortunate they couldn't come. They've... They are, I think they're very sad not to be here because this is the first sort of substantial survey show of their work outside of uh, North America. How did you first encounter uh, Genesis's, Genesis's yeah. work? That's not easy to say. <laughs> no. um, actually, it is a story not far from here. Um, so when I was about 19, uh, during the great period where Australia had one airline, Qantas, um, I decided to come to Melbourne uh, and... Uh, at that point to, to get the flight because there was only the one airline was about like $10,000. So I thought, I'm going to catch the train down to Melbourne. So on the train I went. And um, at that point, polyester was this real beacon uh, for sort of subversive materials of all kinds. And I'm sure I can say this now and no one's going to go looking for them, but they used to make these amazing bootleg VHS tapes of things. So they would, you could find like William Burroughs Towers open fire. They'd, I think, go on shopping trips and then just dupe them out the back and sell them for 50 bucks and people like me would buy them. And um, anyway, while I was there, I bought a bunch of these bootleg videos and I also bought a copy of the research uh, manual for Burroughs, which has this interview with, with Genesis in it, talking about Brian Geisen and, and Burroughs. And that was probably the first place that I really became interested in what they were doing you know i had a great fascination with bars and guys in my teen years and and genesis was was and, and in fact i think still is that connection point now that intergenerational um connection point between the mid 20th century avant-garde if you like of, of um, and sort of subversive culture to, to to people like me and other artists making work now they're the kind of the bridge in some respects so 
Genesis uh, has done so much in so many fields that it's kind of difficult to know where to start. Some people will know of Throbbing Gristle, mm. for example, or uh, another band, Psychic TV, but there's also kind of uh, a connection to chaos magic. Um, there's the visual arts itself, and as you're here talking about an exhibition. So kind of if you were to try to unpack uh, the the creative career that Genesis has had has is there a connective thread that runs through it? Look, for me, I think about, and I don't think they would think this is unfair, but I think there have been different periods of of intense interest. You know, they're restless. You know, when you look at the, the where they came through the kind of performance artwork, Coombe transmissions into Throbbing Gristle, there are some very natural shared themes I think between the experiential from an audience perspective experiential kind of engagement with the work what I'm uh, what I'm very interested in particularly with this in- exhibition is it's it's very much focused on probably Jen's most recent phase in their life which has been their, their life with Lady J um, and also this sort of pandrogyny project which for me is something I think is really a, a very individual way of approaching identity um, that sits outside of a lot of the other kind of conversations happening around identity. And for me, that was one, the one thing I really wanted to kind of address. That Between that and that sort of intergenerational nexus, I think they're the things that really kind of interest me. And that's very much what these works are kind of focused on in the exhibition. Pandrogyny is not a term that many people will be familiar with. They'll have heard, they may know androgyny, for example, but not pandrogyny. Pan, expand, what, uh, encompassing all? Yeah, I mean, it's about that kind of hermaphroditic... Um, interest that that, that that the kind of complete whole is the unison of these things and and, and Genesis spent uh, a great deal of time with with their partner Lady J just sort of exploring the ways in sometimes in very physical ways through through surgeries and through a kind of you know the, the cutting of the sacred flesh as they say um, and then also in a kind of transcendental way sort of exploring um, the the third mind if you like that can be born out of this relationship and I think it's really for me it's 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 really beautiful, actually, because it's really just a love story. I know that sounds quite um, however you want to take it, but it is. It is about this kind of desire for absolute love. Um, and a lot of the work really dwells on that, exactly how it is that those relational conditions need to be met to, to, to kind of have that happen. What kind of uh, media is Genesis working in? Uh, it's, ac- it's across different sorts of forms. So most of the work in this exhibition is uh, there's some collage work, some large format um, painting and uh, some sort of plexi works and photography. Um, there's also a series of video works. We're showing one of these uh, video works as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's very much sort of wall-based work in this particular exhibition. The last few years they've been doing a lot of collage materials. Not so much of that is... That's sort of focused on a different kind of interest, so it's not so much represented in this exhibition. Uh, this one very much kind of resides on this, this idea of identity. Um, the, the, the use of collage is always something that fascinates me because in the hands of an accomplished artist, collage is such kind of a, a rich work, but it's something that many of us were introduced to in primary school, for example. Yeah. Uh, and so it it's, can be both simple and complex. Uh, and also, the given everything I know of Genesis and their career, the, this notion, collage seems a, a very appropriate art form in a way, that, that, that kind of layering and mixing and contrasting. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it, you know, and I think as well the materials, often it's Polaroids or, you know, th- things that are very available. I think Genesis has always been interested in those available materials because I think if you look at the roots of, you know, their musical practice, for example, or, or the performance practice before that, it was very much about availability. You know, there was there was an instrument available so that became a, 
a device to be used. And I think that kind of taps into the other thing, which is probably the the recurrent theme, if you like, of Genesis's life has been this sort of uh, attack or, you know, desire to deconstruct control systems. You know, that's that's something that was the kind of mantle, if you like, that was passed on from, from William Burroughs to them. And they've carried that forward sometimes in very direct, sharp ways, but I think increasingly in the last kind of decade and a half, two decades, since that, that kind of partnership with Jay, it has shifted into a much... I don't know, in my respects, a much more kind of welcoming way of kind of how it is that you can use particular things to, to, to deconstruct, to, to play with those ideas of control and to manipulate them in ways that open them up um, rather than blast them apart. And and kind of I love that notion of kind of deconstructing control at uh, the level of gender and biology as well. It's kind of like breaking down the, the rigid binaries that kind of have dominated the way we think about human beings for so long, kind of fracturing that and, and finding the, the, the space in between. I think it's very much about the in-between. I think it's also the beyond. I think this is really the, this, this idea that, you know, when, when Jay passed, she sort of dropped her body they like to say, and I think it's an interesting way to kind of conceptualise it. And they still feel that there is a great connection there, that Jay, some, in some respects, represents the Pandragine in this other place, wherever that might be, and Genesis is the kind of root here. So it's an interesting uh, sort of ontology that they've developed, um, which is very individual. Now, Lawrence, you mentioned that this is the first major uh, exhibition of Genesis P. Orridge's kind of artworks in Australia, yeah. which strikes me as a bit of an oversight by kind of the, the, the major galleries because Genesis has had a, an artistic career spanning four decades or more, uh, has been kind of uh, exhibited in uh, kind of at the Andy Warhol Museum and other major galleries internationally. Why has the Australian cultural sector lagged behind? Well, actually, it's interesting. The curator who was behind the show at the Warhol Museum. It was Nicholas Chambers who's at the Art Gallery of New South Wales now and before that was at GOMA. So he is in fact an Australian holding the torch uh, high, you know, high and proud in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, it's, I, it's, it's difficult. I think because of what you were talking about before that the, it's not a singular trajectory. I think sometimes that makes it uh, difficult for work to resonate in particular ways as, as uh, Genesis often says, you know, the, the art world loves patterns. And I think that's very fair. Um, and it can be difficult to kind of categorise where the work fits because it is across media, it's across interests, it's about a, a lived experience, I think, more than anything. And that can be kind of a difficult thing to reconcile uh, into a curatorial format. And I think as well there's just been a... I think now, and I sort of feel like in the next 10 years, if Genesis is... Uh, well enough to continue um, doing their work, I think it will begin to resonate differently. I think the time for Genesis's sort of ontological interest is now, in fact. The exhibition is Loyalty Does Not End With Death, uh, the work of Genesis P. Orridge, uh, curated by uh, my guest Lawrence English. It's on at the substation, 1 Market Street, Newport. Uh, Opening tonight, uh, and the season runs through until uh, Saturday the 10th of March. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Exhibition opening hours are Tuesdays to Saturdays, 11am till 5pm. It's a free exhibition presented by the substation in association with Room 4 as part of Midsummer Festival. Midsummer concludes this weekend, but the exhibition Loyalty Does Not End With Death on, as we said, until Saturday the 10th of March. The substation, 
located at 1 Market Street, Newport, just over the the, uh, the road from the train. And uh, you can jump online and go to thesubstation.org.au for more details. Lawrence English, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, we've selected a, a track by Genesis P Origin Friends from the Psychic TV album Allegory and Self, um, a track called Godstar. Before I play it, do you want to introduce it? Why, did, why this well, track? Well, apart from having the most hooky uh, kind of melody net that I've found is actually I have to say have been an earworm for the last three months for me it's also about Brian Jones from Rolling Stones who you know we have to thank for the discovery well at least the popularization of the master musicians of Jaduka amongst other things uh, so without these great figures kind of looming in the past we wouldn't have all those wonderful engagements that we have to this day so thank you thank you Brian this has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.